Those pages should be getting worn out. Romans chapter 15. And we'll be focusing on verses 7 through 13 this morning, but I want to begin with verse 1. So we'll read 1 through 13 of Romans 15. And I did have you sit down. Sorry, I want you to stand once again. Except that I shouldn't apologize for that, should I? All right. Beginning at verse 1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord for all you Gentiles and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You may be seated. Dependent on you, Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, we believe that your word will go forth and that you will be glorified in your Son, Jesus. Thank you for using weak vessels to communicate this precious truth. Grant me strength and clarity. And may the hearers turn from their sin and embrace your son. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. Well, we come to the end this morning of Paul's great concern for weak and strong believers in Jesus Christ in the local church. 
his main overriding concern is that they live in unity with one another despite the fact that they have different ideas about how the Christian life should be lived out in areas of Christian liberty. Unity, despite the fact that they have differences of opinion and differences of conscience in areas where God's word has left Christians completely free. And we learned last week that the obligation for a growing unity in the church primarily falls on the spiritually strong intentionally reaching out to the weak and carrying them along in their failings in the love of Jesus and in the truth of God's holy word. Our verses this morning, verses 7 through 13, continue to support that exhortation to the strong in verse 1. So let me read it to you. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor, that is, his weak neighbor in the church, for his good to build him up. We also learned that the whole basis of this exhortation is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not please himself. He did not die to please himself. He did not live to please himself. He did not die either to please himself. For on the cross, he bore all of our sinful reproaches against God and suffered their full penalty that we might be saved. And if Jesus did all of that, brothers and sisters, if Jesus did all of that, then the strong in the church, Paul taught, ought to be willing to set aside their Christian liberty wherever the weak are bound by conscience in order to love and care and nurture those weak ones for whom Christ died. That is why I ask you last Lord's Day, if you were one of the strong in the church, or if you were one of the weak. Because if you consider yourself to be one of the strong, then you have a gospel obligation to seek out the weak in your fellowship and ever so patiently bear them up and carry them on in gospel love. This is God's plan for growing unity in the church. And let us not be naive. The minute the strong treat the church as if it has arrived is the very minute the church begins to go backward in its unity. If the church is to have the kind of unity unity that more and more reflects the unity that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then the members of Christ's church must build one another up. And if the church is going to, as Paul prays in verse 6, glorify the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ with one voice, 
then every member in our fellowship must sense your love and concern for them. They must. Therefore, verse 7, therefore, 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 welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Hasn't Christ welcomed you with all of your differences? And so you must welcome one another for God's glory with all of their differences. Why is it that one of the main requirements here for membership in our church is a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? In the membership interview, we don't ask about matters of indifference where Christians are left free to choose for themselves. We focus on the profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's only when a person comes to understand and believe that Christ has graciously made full atonement for him him in his death that God warmly and fully welcomes him and will never cast him out. And so it's on that basis, that same basis, that we must welcome one another. The gospel is what brings us into the Father's welcoming arms. And so it is the gospel that brings us all, no one any less than any other, into each other's welcoming arms. Picture the prodigal son being so tightly embraced and welcomed by his father. It's a wonder the kid could breathe. He was embraced so tightly. This is how Christ welcomes us. And he calls us in response to welcome our brothers and sisters in the church, whether they are weak or whether they are strong. If Christ has welcomed you, how can you refuse to fellowship with certain believers for whom Christ has died and who Christ has already welcomed. In the past, I've challenged you to greet visitors who come in here on occasion at SGRC and to give them a warm welcome. And you do a great job at that, by the way. Because in terms of our worship, this is our sanctuary. But in terms of our being a family through the blood of, our, blood of Jesus Christ, this is our living room. Can you imagine a guest coming into your living room and you not saying one word to them all evening long? Not one word? Now let's look at that from a different angle. If that is important... Isn't it even more important for you to get to know those who are already in your church family and to lovingly care for them so that there is growing unity in the church? We have not arrived. There's lots of doubts in this room. There's lots of weakness in this room. There's all kinds of room for encouragement and prayers and for uh, 
individual Christians here to know that you are deeply concerned for their welfare. There's all kinds of room for growing unity, the kind of growing unity that glorifies God. So in verses 1 to 6, which we covered last week, Paul gives an exhortation to the strong to minister to the weak for the sake of unity. And then he tells us that Jesus Christ and his redemptive work are the basis for that kind of selfless and loving activity. And finally, he drops to his knees and he prays that the church would grow in unity. Now, in verses 8 through 13, Paul concludes this very long section that we have been in by providing the big covenantal picture in order to show us that God has always intended his children to grow in gospel unity despite their differences. To show us that God has always intended his children to grow in gospel unity despite their differences. Listen, all these differences that we have with each other are not a mistake because God is glorified when the gospel overcomes and overshadows differences. The Lord has always had this plan in view for his church. So Paul shows us first God's plan for unity despite differences, verses 8 and 9a. God's plan for worship despite differences, verse 9b through 12. And God's plan for hope despite differences, verse 13. Verse 8 and 9a say this, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that is to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As you know, this was originally written to the first century church at Rome, which was made up of Jewish and Gentile Christians, and the differences between them was stark, let me tell you. But bringing them together was God's doing, so he would be glorified in the gospel of his son. Because of their very backgrounds and ways of thinking, they were having a difficult time fellowshipping with each other. They very well might have been sitting at opposite ends of the fellowship table during their regular fellowship meal. In addition to their differences in nationality and their differences in background, there were also differences by God's design in their understanding of Christian liberty. Some were weak and some were strong. And what Paul is communicating in verses 8 and 9a is that God has always had the covenant plan to include people with great differences in one church and then through the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to grow them into greater unity with one another. There has al- this has always been God's intention, according to verses 8 and 9a, because the main promise that God gave to the patriarchs was the one that he gave to Abraham, that from him the first Jew would come a seed that would bless all the nations of the world. This is really good covenantal theology. That, pro- that promised blessing from God to the first Jew has now come to fruition in our own day in the lives of millions of Gentile believers because the promised seed to Abraham was Christ. So you see, this covenant promise given long ago to Abraham was fulfilled in Christ. God showed his truthfulness to his covenant promise by sending his son into the world as a Jew to live a perfect life under God's law so that he could give account to many Jews and Gentiles his righteousness. And then, as the deacon of deacons, He died for all those whom God had given him, both Jew and Gentile. He has indeed become a blessing to all the nations of the world. Because in fulfilling these ancient promises to the patriarchs, the doors of the gospel were flung wide open to the nations. Or as Paul puts it, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Do you know what happens when Christians glorify God for his mercy? All their distinctions and differences that would divide them begin to fade. That's what happens. All our distinctions and differences uh, don't divide us any more because the gospel has become what it was always intended to be so large and looming in our hearts and lives that those differences can't affect us anymore. And we stop despising one another and we stop judging one another and instead we love one another. It has always been God's intention for the church to be made up of people who are very different from each other, but who find their unity in the gospel of Christ. It's a big, big, big gospel. It's huge. And that's because it's a big, big, big God who has done marvelous things for sinners like you and me. And this big gospel overcomes differences and failings and weaknesses. And it is the strong in the church who especially recognize how important Christ's church is and each member in it. And they are the ones who gratefully lead the way To show others that believers in Jesus Christ always, always have more in common than they have differences with each other. That is how massive 
the love of God is for us otherwise poor, helpless, undeserving sinners like you and me. You know, some churches in our own day strive to gather in only a certain kind of group of people who have a particular common interest in something. And I do not believe that this trend is in line with the intent of our passage or in line with the doctrine of the church that we find in Scripture. Churches should not be known as cowboy churches or biker churches or homeschooling churches or non-homeschooling churches or pickleball churches for that matter. I will say though, that God is so gracious to still work in places like that whenever the pure gospel is preached. But the biblical church is meant to include many different kinds of people who are growing in unity with one another because of a massive gospel. Didn't Paul say in Romans 1 that the gospel was the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This is God's plan for unity despite differences. And it goes hand in hand with God's plan for worship despite differences. We find that in verses 9b through 12. How does Paul put this back in verse 6? Oh yes, we are to worship with One voice, because we have one triune God who sent his son to flood us with unspeakable joy. Jew and Gentile together worshiping, yes. Weak and strong worshiping together, yes. And so we worship despite our differences. And this is the way that God always intended it to be. He quotes four verses from the Old Testament. And I wish all of us, me included, knew the Old Testament scriptures as well as the Apostle Paul knew them because I'm sure that the whole Bible just absolutely came to life for Paul when he saw how the various threads of Old Testament promise came together in Jesus Christ for the saving benefit of people throughout the whole world. In verses 9b through 12, the inspired apostle is absolutely brilliant. This is so rich because he quotes Old Testament verses taken from three major divisions that the Jews had for the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. In verse 9, he quotes from Psalm 18 Verse 49, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This psalm is taken from the section the Jews called the writings. And it is obvious that the Gentiles were always in God's plan A to be added to the church of believing Jews. And this verse is so amazing. You know, God dwelt with Israel. He tabernacled with them 
in the wilderness. This psalm is so amazing because it, it, it is fulfilled in Christ who brings Gentiles to join with him in praise of God the Father. Look at it again. You could say it like this. I, Jesus, will praise you among the Gentiles. So one of the, the, the only true Jew, Jesus, is with us this morning in the person of the Holy Spirit to praise God in our worship with us. He sings with us. Paul also quotes from the writings again from Psalm 117, verse 1. We find that in verse 11 in our passage. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This is the shortest psalm in the Psalter, and yet it has the broad, one of the broadest outlooks for bringing many different kinds of people into Christ's church in unity despite their differences. In verse 10, he quotes from the law in Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, when he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And then in verse 12, he quotes from the prophets, quoting Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 10, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles have hope. This is the way God always intended it to be. It's his plan A. And he quotes from the law, the prophets, and the writings as if to say, wherever you go in the Old Testament, it has always been God's intention from the get-go. To bring believing Gentiles into the church with believing Jews so that they could worship the triune God together in unity with one voice. And to give you just a little bit of scrumptious covenant theology, Jesus is true Israel. And those who believe, Jew and Gentile, are in him. Brothers and sisters, we are the Israel of God. That is covenant theology. And we have not been redeemed to squabble over differences of opinion with regard to Christian liberty. We've been redeemed to worship our triune God together despite our differences. And once again, Paul stops dead in his tracks with a heart dependent upon God in prayer for all of this. And that's where God's plan for hope comes in despite our differences. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. He is the God of encouragement. Verse 5. He is the God of hope. Verse 13. And may He, the God of hope, fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in 
hope. He's the God of hope. So we look to Him. Despite our differences, with all of our differences, we look to the God of hope who gives hope and fills us with joy and peace in believing in His Son. It's sure hope. It's blessed hope. And the more we look to Him who is the source of our hope, the more we will be filled with joy and peace and believing. And the more we love and welcome one another, the more we will be filled with that hope and joy and peace because it is God and God's Spirit through us ministering to one another, creating greater unity that more reflects the unity of the triune God amongst us. We have not arrived. He is the God of hope. He is within you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And He calls us all to welcome one another with the same kind of welcome that He has given to us in Jesus Christ. Has He not welcomed you? Has He not endured with you? Then we must welcome one another. The Gospel is that big. It is that massive. And this is Christ's church. It's not Kent's church. It's not your church. In a few short years, I will be gone. But his church will endure forever and ever and ever. And our place in it is a great privilege, brothers and sisters. And so we must look to the God of hope. And the more we look to our source, the more we will be filled with joy and peace in believing in Jesus, His Son. The world knows nothing of this. And it speaks of the Apostle Paul's great passion for growing unity in the church despite differences. And it finds its source in the God who saved us. And it is enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit so that you and I and all of God's children can abound in hope. My question to you this morning is, will you welcome others as God has welcomed you? Why did Paul fall to his knees in verse 6? Why does he fall to his knees in verse 13? Because there is much work to be done. That's why. There is much work to be done. We could encourage one another, exhort one another, spur one another 24-7 for the next six months and our lives would still not have arrived at the place of unity that God has called us to. There is much work to be done. We do not just come to church and sit under the, the means of grace and call it good. The means of grace is God's means to motivate and empower the church of the living God to do what He has called us to do. He's called us to to reach out and share the gospel with every living creature. 
And so we pray to our source that we might be empowered and filled in order to do that. And in this passage, he, we must look to him for growing unity in the church. I'm excited because we have a wonderful church. And I'm excited about what he is telling us through his word for our futures. But it it will not be easy. You see, Christ did not please himself. So we must be willing to set certain things aside in order to build one another up and thereby have growing unity. Our Lord stopped at nothing and He bore all our reproaches and you are in His loving embrace right now. But guess what? So is your brother and sister sitting next to you. Those who are weak, those who are strong, they are all in His loving embrace. And so we must be willing to embrace them as He has embraced us and them. Also remember that those who are hard to love are sometimes believers in Jesus Christ. I don't know how to even frame that in regard to my sin and what Christ did for me. And to the strong, are you willing to set aside your Christian liberty to build up those who are weak? Thank God that the Apostle Paul prayed for us. Thank God that in the priestly ministry of our Lord and Savior, he's praying for us and interceding for us even right now that we might have all our joy in him and share it with each other and with the lost and dying world. And so we too must pray and look to the source. And so let's do that now. Our Father, we thank you for these words and we praise you that it's only done through the Holy Spirit and in dependence upon you. We ask your mercy and your grace and your strength and your very life to fill us so that we might be to others what you have been to us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll take your order of worship, I have the same...